for that. Our title today is The Christian Marriage. We're looking in particular to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33, under the title The Christian Marriage. Under this title, we're going to encounter three points separation, union, and oneness. Let me begin by saying this marriage is, by definition, a covenant. And a covenant, by definition, is an agreement between two parties, in this case, a man and a woman. But the covenant of marriage, while an agreement between two parties, doesn't only affect those two parties. A covenant affects many things and many people. In my opinion, this is just one of the things that is so often neglected under the topic of marriage. I want you to write this down. If your covenant is strong, then your marriage will affect everything. But if your covenant is not strong, everything will affect your marriage. Because God wants great things for you, and because I want great things for you, I want to share with you today, under this title of Christian marriage, three points that I believe is going to help our understanding here. First, separation. This is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, and we're going to call it A. That means it's the first part or section of the verse. Chapter 5, verse 31, reads like this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, there are a few things here worth noting. First, I want you to note that Paul is quoting Scripture. In chapter 5, verse 31, Paul is quoting Scripture. The Scripture that he's quoting is found early in the book of Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In Genesis 2, 24, the Scripture teaches us, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The old King James Version says, cleave. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but not ashamed. This is what we read in the book of Genesis, and so we read it in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 31, because the apostles don't twist Scripture. They quote it clearly, precisely, and they make or illustrate their point. This is an interesting point. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and Paul's quotation of it found in Ephesians 5, 31, namely that the two shall become one and that the father shall see his son depart from his house and that son will become one with his wife. Some conversation has been experienced around this issue. Gerhard von Rod, who was an Old Testament professor who died in the 1970s, said that this was unusual in a patriarchal society because if it was truly patriarchal, the woman would leave her family for the husband, not the other way around. Interesting perspective. Another theory is summed up in an ancient proverb. A son is a son until he has found a wife. A daughter is a daughter for her entire life. Maybe there is truth in that perspective as well, but a true patriarch, say amen if you're listening, 
A true patriarch doesn't make demands. A true patriarch provides. So where Gerhard von Rod is wrong, in my opinion, is that this patriarch who's being referred to in Ephesians 5.31, who's being told to leave his father's house and start his life, he's not leaving his, father, his father's house and twisting a patriarchal idea. I think we're taking our definition of patriarchal society and inserting it into the Bible. I think the Bible says that a patriarchal society is a society that doesn't have men demanding of women to behave a certain way, but rather providing for the women that they love. This son leaves his father's house to provide a home for the woman that he loves. And although there is some truth to the proverb that a son is a son until he finds a wife, but a daughter is a daughter for her entire life, I'm not sure that's what's being said either. What's also interesting is how prophetic this verse is. We find it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, but the original quotation takes place in Genesis chapter 2, which happens before Adam and Eve have parents. So this is kind of interesting, chronologically speaking, because the verse takes place with Adam and Eve present, but no parents, which says something to us. This is part of God's creative order. So, First of all, I want us to note that Paul's quoting Scripture here. Second, I want you to note that Paul affirms what the Scripture is teaching. He's not calling it into question. He's affirming what Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, namely, that there comes a time when a man, when who? A man. And by implication, a woman. Should leave his father, and his mother. And we certainly see this in the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, before Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham, God commanded Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to what he says. Quote, Now the Lord said to Abram, get this, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, and go to the land that I'll show you. Did you get that? Pretty clear, pretty concise. I think we gloss right over it. But this is one of those verse, verses that teaches us the importance of not only God's command to Abram and Abram's obedience to God's command by faith, but it also shows us the importance of this. Namely, in order for Abraham to fulfill his destiny, he had to leave his father's house. Did you get that? There was a command that came, and God commanded Abraham to leave his familiarity and his father's house in order for him to inherit his destiny. We see this throughout human folklore, don't we? For example, King Arthur and Excalibur. King Arthur is the only one who could wield the great sword Excalibur that was forged in dragon's fire. But before he can rule, he has to overcome his evil uncle. 
He's got to be his own man. It's not enough that he's his father's son. He has to wield the sword Excalibur himself and kill the evil that would end his destiny. It's something that he has to do. It's not something that can be resolved outside of himself. In order to fulfill his destiny, this is a necessary prerequisite. How about a more modern illustration? Star Wars. Luke Skywalker grows up on his uncle and aunt's farm, far removed from the influence of Darth Vader and the Empire, but inside, Luke Skywalker knows there's more to his life and there's more to him. He has a destiny that he will not find on the farm. And he has to leave to find it. Gentlemen, what I'm telling you is that you will not find your destiny in your mother's pantry. You will not find your destiny in your father's shed. Throughout history, we see God telling men to leave their parents' house because they cannot fulfill their destiny under their privileged parents' destiny. They have to step out, encounter difficulty, show initiative, and then experience what God has called them to do and who he's called them to be. It's true. We are called to honor our father and mother. This is absolutely scriptural. But the idea of honor is dynamic. And the way we are to honor our parents when we are five years old is not the same way we are to honor our parents when we're 25 years old and married. But our society keeps postponing adulthood. If you grow up in Judaism, at 13 you have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. It is considered a rite of passage. You go from youth to adulthood. In many cultures around the world, you go from youth to adulthood. But in the United States of America, we've inserted this psychological joke called adolescence. And it goes from 13 to like, I don't even know anymore, 30-ish? And we've influenced it with a steroid called games. And when men used to be taking a woman by the hand and romancing her and enticing her to be the love and romantic interest in their life forever and to have babies with them and to grow a home together, now they're distracted by things that aren't nearly as interesting as women. But this is what our culture has taught them. Not to be a man, but to postpone manhood and masculinity in favor of staying up late in your pajama pants, playing games with somebody in Germany. Postponing employment 
or postponing serious employment or postponing the college degree or postponing the technical certification. Whatever God has called you to do and to be, each and every one of us, gentlemen, has a different calling in the Lord. No man in this church has been called to be the pastor of this church except this man. This is God's calling in my life, but God's calling in your life is not less important, but it's different. So whether God's calling you to a technical certification or a a four-year college degree or full-time employment or whatever it is, I can tell you this, amen if you're listening, you will not inherit it in your parents' house. For this reason, for what reason? Women. There is not a better reason to leave your father and mother's house. They say, Dad, I love you. Mom, I love you. But there's a woman I got to go see about. And when she says yes to me, we're not going to date five years and have a three-year engagement. We're going to date long enough for us to get to know each other, and then we're going to get married. You can't do that in your parents' house. You also cannot inherit your destiny until you decide that it will not come to you. It is something you must go get. We see it in the case of Abraham. We see it in the case of King Arthur. And of course, the best of all three illustrations, Luke Skywalker. There is a restlessness in men that cannot be satiated until they leave their father and mother's house and go to their destiny. But in addition to this, finally, I want you to note that Paul quotes Scripture. He affirms Scripture. And finally, there's an obvious reference here to union. Look at chapter 5, verse 31 again with your eyes as I read. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and what? Man shall leave his father and mother, and what? Hold fast. To his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's our next point. Union, which we're going to cover shortly. But for now, let me say this before we get to it. Let's acknowledge the obvious. Unity implies something. Namely, a commitment to something or someone beyond anything or anyone else. Unity suggests that while I know who I am and what I am, I will be more complete with this other. I am more complete with my wife. In the Bible's words, get this, in the Bible's words, The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will be what? One flesh. You see, as paradoxical as it might be, I'm not one without my wife. With my wife, I'm one. But without my wife, I'm alone. 
That's the biblical formula. Which leads us to this idea of unity. For a husband who loves his wife, there is no prosthetic, there is no replacement for that woman that God has given to him to love. Without her, he's incomplete. Without her, he's alone. And nothing and no one is strong enough or worthy enough to stand in the way of that man and the woman he loves. Now, you don't know this because now she's just, she just woos over me, my wife. But she said, well, she, I, I shouldn't say no because that sounds, that sounds awful. But she turned me down for years. So we met in high school. What is so funny, miss? This is not funny. <laughs> you think it's funny. I think it's a testament to my perseverance. <laughs> Thank you. For years, we met in high school. And uh, she wouldn't have anything to do with me, if you can believe it. And finally, uh, we went on a couple dates, and now I can't get her to leave me alone. But the point of the story is, <laughs> the point of the story is, I'm incomplete without my wife. My life doesn't make sense without Dimey. The Bible doesn't say that these two people are whole and then they meet each other. The Bible says that they're not whole until they're together. Think about that under this next point, unity. Chapter 5, verse 31. Again, read it with your eyes. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this is the point I want us to see here. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, there's a variety of ways in which this can be done, but I'm going to mention a few of them this morning because I think, I think it would be helpful for you to have some practical notes to put your hands on. Number one, union is created by vows. You want union in your relationship, gentlemen, with the woman that you love? Ladies, you want union in the relationship with the man that you love? Union is created by vows. Union begins with promises that are exchanged by a man and a woman. We call them vows. And vows are promises that are exchanged by two people, a man and a woman, who are acknowledging equally with the same wording, back and forth to each other, that they no longer belong to themselves, but to the one who is standing opposite them in the marriage ceremony. And those vows mean something. Well, they're supposed to mean something. The problem is, while the vows mean something, we really don't believe what they say. We say that we're being unified, for example, in sickness and in health, whether rich or poor. But the real problem is we don't think we're ever going to get sick, and we don't think we're ever going to be poor. But if you've been married longer than five minutes, you've probably been sick, and you've probably wondered how you're going to pay that bill. 
or what you're going to have left over after this bill. The reality of the matter is, when we make vows to each other and we say before God and all of our friends and family that no matter what comes up against us, we will be faithful to each other, it behooves us to appreciate the weight of the vow. The vow means something. Because the vow is a promise to the person before God and all the witnesses that essentially says, no matter what hardship we face, I'm going to stick by you. Cohabitation is cheap. They're like, I don't know, I'm bored. Do you want to live together? Yeah, let's try it out. And then you live together, and you just, it doesn't work out. And you're like, well, by the way, statistically, it doesn't work out. Less than 10% of cohabitating couples last five years. So basically, it doesn't work. So essentially, what takes place is a trial and error kind of thing that always ends in an error. You know why? Because no one has made a commitment to the other. They haven't said it before God. They haven't said it before friends and family. They're simply playing house. You add a cat, and then it's like we're a whole family now. Well, that's not vows. That's an imitation of what God designed. And my challenge to you, young people, is to never allow yourself to fall prey to that kind of thinking. If you find yourself in a situation where you are longing to be with someone, it's time to get married. Here's another thing. Union is created by a home. Pulling again from the first part of this verse, the Bible's expectation of a man and a woman who have exchanged vows, as we've already said, and made a covenant to each other before God and all their friends and family is that they leave what they have known as their home. And you know what happens? They leave their home and they don't go to someone else's home. They make their own And it doesn't matter if you've got a $56 dinette and a $100 couch. It's your dinette and it's your couch. It's the most amazing couch you've ever sat on in your life. And though every three days you've got to tighten the screws in the dinette because you got it from Ikea, it's not important. It's the most amazing dinette you've ever sat at in your life. You know why? It's yours. It's yours. I mentioned this last week, and I know that I ruffled some feathers, and I'm sorry for that. But this is the truth. And the truth sometimes confronts us in uncomfortable ways. Amen? If you're interested in getting married, you need to either have your own place or be poised to have your own place. Unity requires a home. Not four bedrooms and three bathrooms. Not an acre and a half. Not a pool with a large deck outside. You don't need all those things. Say amen if you're listening. Your first home doesn't need all of those things, but I will tell you what you need. If you want unity in your marriage, then you need privacy. Unity requires privacy. Pulling from the quote that 
Paul is using in Ephesians, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, and the man and woman were naked but not ashamed. You have to have freedom as a husband and a wife who has made a pact to each other, to God and to everyone else, that you're never going to break trust, that you're never going to break faith, that you can be naked together without being ashamed because you've made a promise. But that's hard to do when you're waiting, your mom's about to get home at 4.15. These things can't be rushed. Intimacy has to be enjoyed. This is not, I mean, we laugh because we're a little uncomfortable, but the devil did not make sex. God made sex. He made sex as the crowning act and blessing of the marital union. Some people are having sex and they have no union. But the sex is a blessing that comes from a spiritual, emotional, and psychological connection. And it climaxes with sexual intimacy. But you can't counterfeit this stuff, guys. And you definitely can't counterfeit it when mom's about to get home. So go get your Ikea table. Go to Restore in Broward and buy your secondhand couch or whatever. Make your own home. You want unity in your marriage? Make your own home. Next thing I want you to consider when it comes to unity is this. If you want to be unified in your marriage, then you've got to have unity on finances. To each his own, you can do whatever you want. As long as you're giving to the church faithfully, ultimately your house is your decision. But I don't live in your house and you don't live in mine. I'm going to tell you what I think real union is. Real union occurs when a husband and a wife have one operating account that they live off of. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, you've got a business account. You've got to have that to the side. That's your business. But in my opinion, a husband and a wife can talk all they want about unity. But if they're living off of different accounts and they're saying, you pay this bill, I pay that bill, they're not really unified. You're not unified until your check goes into the bank. The same pot. And I don't mean putting in 1500 and taking out 500 and nobody knows where the 500 goes. If you make a commitment to another person, whether a woman to a, woman to a man or a man to a woman, what you're saying is, is everything of mine is yours. And everything of yours is mine. And if you're living on two separate accounts, that's not truth anymore. It's everything I want to be yours will be yours. But everything I don't want to be yours will be mine. That's not unity. Everything that we spend money on, Daimi and I, serves the unity of our team, of our marriage. Before Daimi and I were married, we had one account. Even before we were married. Partly because she insisted on it and I do whatever she says. <laughs> but the other reason was Daimi and I pay for our wedding. Now, some of you have... Families that can support you and give to your marriage, 
you have something coming up, they're like, hey, we'll contribute five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars to this. We'll do it for you. And that's amazing and that's fantastic, and I'm so happy for you. But not all of us had that situation when we got married, but we were getting married. Don't let money or anything else stand in your way. Our family got together, we planned it, we did ourselves what we could do, right? Right? And we had a fantastic wedding with like 400 people. And we did everything right there at the church because that's what we could afford. And then we went to the Marriott. And the issue that I see so often in couples is when it comes to being unified, they're not really unified because they live off of two separate budgets. If you want to really test the unity... In your relationship, close all the accounts, make one account, put everything in one account. Now you gotta work together. Now you gotta talk about what money goes where. How much are we giving to God? How much are we allowed to use for date night? How much are we using on groceries? How much are we spending on, I just felt like going shopping Old Navy had a sale. This is unity. Doing whatever you want without any repercussions is not unity. That's an individualism with a relationship. That's not marriage. As I said, you can do whatever you want with your life. It's your money. But if you want to be unified, one pot. Lastly, union is created by Christ. This might seem to be a spiritual point, And you might be right, but it's a spiritual point with a practical application. Verses 31 and 32 say this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, right? Follow me. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, our union as a married couple The union that a married couple experiences is a picture of the union between Christ and his church. This is partly why marriages are designed by God to be enacted, but not to be broken. Now, I know there are some divorces in here. I am not judging you. I'm not calling you out. I don't care if you're on your 10th marriage. All I'm telling you is today, hear the word of the Lord. We all have history, amen? We've all made decisions that we would love to be able to make again. Or sometimes we look back and say, if I was the man I was then that I am now, I would not have done this, that, or the other thing. But that's not what I'm, I'm not judging anyone here. What I'm telling you is, if you love Jesus, then you love unity. Because Paul says, the picture of the husband and wife is a picture of the unity between Christ and his church. And let me tell you, people, there is no break in unity between Christ in his church. In fact, what we see with Christ and the church is oneness. That's our last point this morning. Let's cover it. Again, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. With the start of separation, which subsequently follows up with unity, 
union to the one with whom we promise before God and all of our friends and family to spend our life with, we then have oneness. What about oneness? Is it something more than unity? Well, yes. Oneness is more than unity. In my position, there are people who have separated from their families and they have been unified by a court of law, but they lack oneness in their marriage. Oneness isn't unity. Oneness is something deeper, something more intimate. It's something incredibly personal. Now, how do we bless our unity with oneness? I have a few suggestions. Oneness begins with faith. Oneness begins with faith. You want to experience oneness and the unity of your marriage? Make sure your faith is intact with the person you are with. Paul once wrote these words, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? This is an important verse, and it reminds us of the most important and meaningful relationship in our life, namely with Jesus. If we have a relationship with Jesus, then our relationships should be like-minded. We should have the same core values and the same morals. Of course, we can have friends who are not believers. Of course we can. And God willing, we can influence them toward the gospel. Sure, absolutely. But when it comes to family, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to business, when it comes to your best friends, these things should not be trifled with. These relationships should be Christian to Christian. And decisions that are made by someone who doesn't trust Christ versus someone who does trust Christ are wildly different. What motivates someone who doesn't know Jesus and what motivates someone who does know Jesus are very different. So your most important relationships, if you want to experience oneness and your unity, must be with Christians. That's the first step. Secondly, oh, well, oneness, excuse me, is maintained by grace. Now, we like to live by law. Now, I don't know. I'm going to talk, guys, ladies, you can just daydream for a second or something. Guys, have you ever wondered why you have a memory at all? Have you ever said to your wife, I don't even know why I think, because you remind me of everything from the fall of Rome up to the fact that I dropped this dish accidentally in the sink? Have you ever had that moment? No one will answer. I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> Listen, we can be nagging and petty. Our wives can be nagging and petty. Well, the truth of the matter is we can live one of two ways. We can live by law or we can live by grace. And if you want oneness, and your unity, if you want your unity to be blessed with oneness, which is an intimacy unmatched by anything or anybody, you cannot live by law. You must live by grace. We have to share grace with everyone who's around us, but listen, especially with our spouse. They know the worst about us. We can fake anything for a while, but you can't fake 
it 24 hours a day over the long haul. Eventually, your wife knows you. This means that all the riches that we have belong to our spouse. Regardless of their imperfections, you know why? Because that's grace. Whether our spouse is perfect or not, we love them and we love them well. Because that's what grace does. Oneness requires grace. You say, well, that's easy. That's easy for you to say. No, no, I I need to say something else. Oneness requires forgiveness. Oneness also requires forgiveness. If there is Christ, then there is grace. And if there is grace, then there is, help me out, forgiveness. You cannot have oneness in your relationship if you're harboring something that happened last week, six months ago, three years ago, whatever the case might be. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Argument done. You have not been given permission by God to carry these feelings of unforgiveness. God has forgiven us in Christ, and as an expectation of God's forgiveness in Christ, he expects us to be forgiving. Now, you might say, but Joe, you don't understand. Well, I can tell you this. Our sin required, in God's wisdom, the death of his son. I don't know what your spouse did, but what you did to the holy God is worse. Keep that in perspective. What God has forgiven us of is exponentially more than what we could ever forgive our spouse of. Remember that. I love what Andy Andrews says in his book called The Traveler. He says, forgiveness is the secret hiding in plain sight. It's the answer to so many of our problems. The truth is forgiveness is often difficult, but without forgiveness, the oneness in our marriage begins to get compromised and distance settles in where there used to be closeness. It gets cold where it should be warm. We get temperamental where we should be patient. We get harsh and abrasive where we could be gentle. Friends, we have to be forgiving if we would have oneness in our marriage. And I'm going to say this. Sometimes forgiveness takes time. And by that, I don't mean that you put off forgiveness to tomorrow. What I mean is it might be a process for you. It might be a process for you to trust God to do a work in your life enough to let go of something that you've been holding on to. Finally, oneness is baptized by love. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects, she receives that love from her husband 
in the complementarity of the Christian marriage, there's a design that is rooted in the gospel truth, and it unfolds itself in the practical aspects of our daily life. If a Christian is a lousy husband, I don't want to hear anything from him about the gospel. Don't talk to me about Jesus if you don't love your wife well. Because Paul says the marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. And if you're a bad husband, don't talk about Jesus. Ladies, if you're a poor wife, I don't want to hear about Jesus. If you can't love your wife well, Ladies, if you can't receive your husband's love well and submit to God's design and creative order for your marriage, I don't want to hear you about Jesus because Paul has tied your marriage to Jesus and the church. And if you, by your behavior, are making a poor reflection of that, then you're better off going to counseling and not sharing the gospel. Getting your life and your marriage right and then coming back and sharing the gospel so that you understand the implication of your behavior. There are people who hear you talk about Jesus but see the way you treat your spouse and they're going, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. When people see you as a husband, gentlemen, or when people see you as a wife, ladies, they should see that and be inspired to know Jesus. They should see that and go, that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my children. That's what is incredibly important for the health of a community, etc. Christianity is deeply spiritual. Absolutely, yes. But there is not one iota of Christianity that doesn't somehow play out in our practical everyday lives. If we believe in Jesus and the unity of his church, then in our marriage, we should have unity and oneness. Love covers a multitude of sins, Peter said. You want oneness in your marriage. Then it needs to be baptized in love. Without love, our marriages will be shells and models like lifeless mannequins on display. They look real, but they're lifeless. To close, this morning we've covered Christian marriage. We talked about separation, union, and oneness. Just as Christ has separated us from the world, brought us into unity with him, and blessed the church with oneness. Let's pray this morning that separation would happen where it needs to happen. That union would be protected and celebrated. And that the beautiful art of oneness would be practiced in our marriages. <laughs>